0: Judge Will O'Rorty serves the good citizens of Redmond, Washington, by meeting out justice. Several years ago, the judge had just sentenced a defendant, Larry Key, to 60 days in jail on a drunk driving conviction. That's when Key bolted. He dashed from the do- for the door and escaped the courtroom. What happened next, though, he didn't expect. He had no way to anticipate Judge O'Rourke's reaction. The judge leaped over the bench, chased Key out of the courthouse, down the street to the supermarket nearby. Imagine that the judge in hot pursuit, his judicial robes flapping in the breeze. The judge chased him into the supermarket where Key was arrested and hauled back into the courtroom. Judge O'Rourty then tacked on nine months to Key's 60-day sentence, proving you can't outrun the long legs of the law. And our book today proves that you can't outrun the long legs of the Lord. You can't duck God. Jonah was a man who learned the hard way that you can't run from God. The book begins... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now the name Jonah means dove, but by nature, Jonah was more a hawk. Jonah was extremely nationalistic. He was pro-Israeli. Jonah believed strongly and rightly that the Hebrews were God's chosen people and were destined to rule over all the other nations. This is why Jonah's first assignment from God had been such a joy. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 states of King Jeroboam, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. According to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken... Through his servant Jonah. Jonah predicted victory for Israel. Expansion of her borders. Hey, judgment on the Gentiles. Blessing to the Jews. This was a prophecy right up Jonah's alley. Here was a prophecy that fit Jonah's prejudice. But now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah with a different kind of request. He's told now to go beyond Israeli borders. And call the city of Nineveh to repentance. And here's the problem. Though Jonah loved God, he hated Ninevites. Jonah was a spiritual bigot. He understood that Israel was God's chosen people. But that never meant that there wasn't room in God's heart for other people. God loved the Ninevites just as much as he loved the Israelites. It reminds me of the Chinaman and the Jew. They were eating lunch in a deli. And with no provocation at all, the Jew walks over and he punches the Chinaman. The Chinese fellow shouts, what's that for? The Jew answers, Pearl Harbor. The Chinaman can't believe it. He says, we had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. That that was the Japanese. The Jew sort of shrugs and he says, does it matter to me, Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, you're all the same to me. Moments later, the Chinaman, he walks over and he cold cocks a Jew. The Jew picks himself up off the ground and he says, what in the world is that for? The Chinaman answers, the Titanic. The Jew sort of scratches his head and he says, I don't get it. What did the Jews have to do with the sinking of the Titanic? The Chinese fellow looks at him and he says, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg, it doesn't matter to me. (laughs) Hey, at times racial prejudice is just that irrational. Somewhere along the line, Jonah copped the attitude that the Jews were better than everybody else. You see, in Jesus' day, some of the rabbis taught that God created the Gentiles as nothing more than kindling to stoke the flames of hell. Like Jonah, they hated anyone who was not a Jew. When will we learn that racial bigotry is an affront to God? It narrows and restricts and puts limits on God's grace. Prejudice shrinks God's heart to one group. My group. Prejudice is the ultimate selfishness. Once a lady in our church told me, Sandy, prejudice isn't a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And indeed it's true. Prejudice is the pinnacle of pride. To think that just because you're not like me, you're somehow inferior. That is sheer heresy. Prejudice is a sin against God's love and God's creativity. Jonah was a bigot. But there may have been some reasons for his hatred of the Assyrians. You see, most of us reject the kind of irrational prejudice that occurred in that deli between the Jew and the Chinaman. But seldom is bigotry so simple. You see, racial prejudice is so prevalent because it gets more personal. The Assyrians had the most heinous, brutal, cruel, bloodthirsty army to ever roam the earth. The Assyrians were a sword with no conscience. You see, after conquering a village, here's what they'd do. They would hold a man down on the ground, they would reach into his mouth, and they would rip his tongue out by its roots. They amputated arms and legs, hacked off feet, plucked out eyes, cut off lips and ears. that They would set fire to a man's wife and children before his very eyes. An Assyrian trademark was to pile skulls up outside the city gate just to remind those who were left what would happen if they rebelled. Oftentimes, the Assyrian would skin their prisoners alive like you would clean a fish. It's believed many of Hitler's crimes against the Jews were borrowed from the ancient Assyrians. Now, 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25 says that Jonah was from a town called Gath-Hefer. It was a Galilean village about five miles northeast of Nazareth. And this was significant. For during Jonah's lifetime, the Galilee was the site of some terrible atrocities. Inscriptions found in the ruins of Nineveh speak of military forays into the Galilee where Assyrian war parties would pillage and raid just enough to intimidate Israel's king. The king would pay blackmail money and buy a few more years of protection from the Assyrians. What if one of those raids occurred in Gath-Hefer? What if you lived in this little village, Gath-Hefer, and one day a band of Assyrians rode in and set fire to your fields and impaled your father on a spear and flayed your brother with a knife and burned your two sisters before your very eyes? God says, love your enemies. Would you love these Assyrians? All of a sudden... Prejudice takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? When you're victimized by someone from a different group, you tend to take out your anger on other members of that same group. It's not right, but it happens. Could this have set off Jonah's prejudice? It's possible Jonah had been violated by the Assyrians, or at least knew someone who had. And... Jonah knew God. He knew that if he preached to these Assyrians and they repented, it would be just like God to forgive these wretched people and treat them as his own people Israel. And that was more, that poor, more than poor Jonah could stomach. You see, Jonah wanted to see Assyria slaughtered, not saved. He, he, wanted, he prayed for her destruction, not her deliverance. Jonah hated Assyria. To hell with Nineveh, was Jonah's attitude. You see, here's a problem that you're going to run into if you follow God. Here's a problem we all have when we follow God. God doesn't hate the people we hate. (laughs) That can be a problem. God doesn't hate the people we hate. The person who cheated you out of your money, or who violated your dignity and your honor, or who robbed you of your innocence. Oh, God hates their sin, but He still loves that person and He wants to forgive them. What do you want? You see, this is where prejudice gets real personal, where it can grow toxic. God loves your ex spouse. Do you? God loves your alcoholic mom who never had time for you. Do you? God loves your abusive dad. Do you? God loves your annoying neighbor. Do you? God loves your unsympathetic boss. Do you? What if God called you to share the gospel with that person you hate? To bring to heaven with you the person you've sent to hell a million times under your breath. I'm telling you, you have a lot more in common with Jonah than you think. Now Jonah decides that he doesn't really want to cooperate with God's missionary efforts to Nineveh. He turns down the assignment. Jonah walks 20 miles to the port of Joppa. Now Nineveh was east... So Jonah buys a one-way ticket westward to the farthest destination they're sailing that day, to the land of Tarshish. It was the equivalent of a slow boat to China. Jonah is on the run. Verse 3 tells us, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) He tries the impossible to flee from the God who is everywhere. Jonah sets sail for Tarshish, but he never makes his destination. For in verse 4, we're told that God stirs up a violent storm at sea. It threatens to break apart the ship. Cargo gets thrown overboard to lighten the load. The captain and the crew, they panic. That's when someone remembers that there's a prophet on board. The captain runs and finds him asleep in the hall. He rebukes Jonah in verse 6. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Members of the crew figure that the storm is the result of a passenger's sin. Apparently God knew that someone was carrying extra baggage. The crew members, they cast lots to determine the culprit. And guess who it points to? To Jonah. In verse 8, they begin to grill him with questions. It's a tribunal at sea. They finally ask him what needs to happen to stop the storm. And Jonah answers them in verse 12... Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Notice Jonah, he's so stuck in his prejudice that he never thinks to change course to Nineveh. He just says, Throw me overboard. It's as far as he can see. The sailors, they don't want to toss Jonah, but God leaves them no choice. Every time they try to make it to the shore, the storm grows more intense. Finally, they pray and they throw Jonah overboard. And the moment his body hits the surface of the water, verse 15 tells us, the sea ceased from its raging. The crew members are so impressed they worship God. Even in his disobedience, Jonah's missionary service has begun. The sailors realize that Jonah's God is the creator and the controller of the sea and the winds. Jonah chapter 1 starts with a great city. It includes a great wind and it ends with a great fish. Verse 17 tells us, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish Three days and three nights. And here's where the story gets a little fishy. How can a man be swallowed by a fish and survive three days and three nights in its belly? Well, let me give you a few possibilities to ponder. In verse 17, the Hebrew word translated prepared implies a special, unique preparation. God didn't just pick the biggest of a school of fish and say, you're it. The word means to carefully design and to weigh. The Jewish rabbis taught that God had created this particular fish on the fifth day of his original creation for the unique privilege of chauffeuring Jonah. That it had swam the seven seas for thousands of years, waiting on the appointed time. Here's another thought. A baby is conceived in his mother's womb. God provides for that baby to float and eat and grow and survive for 280 days in a sack of fluid. Now, please, don't think I would ever be dumb enough to compare a pregnant woman to a whale. I'm stupid. But I'm not that stupid. And I value my life besides. But if God can keep a baby alive in a woman's belly for 40 weeks, why can't He engineer a way to sustain Jonah in a whale's belly for three days? You know, today's Navy has nuclear submarines that generate their own air and water and can stay submerged indefinitely. Why then is it it hard for us to believe that God can create a fish capable of carrying one man for three days? Here's another thought. Since whales are the largest animals currently living in the sea, we assume that this fish was a whale. But could it have been an animal of a different kind? Maybe now an extinct creature? Maybe a dinosaur? Perhaps God created an animal with a cavity just off its digestive tract for no other reason than to hold Jonah. Could be God had done that. Even if this fish was a whale, the story is still not impossible. The average sperm whale has a mouth 20 foot long by 15 feet high by 9 foot wide, larger than most bedrooms. Whalers have found whole man-sized squid and sharks inside of these whales. Now, it would be stifling in a whale's belly, 104, maybe to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. But there would be plenty of air to breathe. The gastric juices in a whale's stomach would affect the pigment in a man's skin. But the chemicals don't digest living flesh. If they did, they would eat out the whale's own stomach. A man could survive in the belly of a whale. In fact, there are numerous reports among whalers of fellow fishermen who have fallen into the ocean only to be found later alive inside of a whale. The stories are hard to confirm, but they're within the realm of possibility. Here's my point. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Jonah refers to God as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And if God makes the sea and the billions of teeming life that inhabit the earth's oceans, then certainly God can create a fish capable of capturing and carrying Jonah for 72 hours. Here's a final suggestion. Regardless of what swallowed Jonah, it's possible that he died. That he actually drowned in the sea that his dead body was preserved inside the fish, then he was resurrected and spit up on the shore. Notice in chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, but look at what he says in the last line. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol was an Old Testament name for Hades, for the abode of the dead. It could be that Jonah was speaking metaphorically, that this fish was a real shield, it was just sort of a hell on earth. Or his words could be taken literal. That Jonah actually died and repented from Hades, where God then gave him a second chance. Remember in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus literally died, went to Hades where he preached to the captives, and then he rose from the dead on the third day. And he compares his journey into the afterlife to Jonah's experience. Perhaps Jonah actually died in the sea or in the belly of the fish and was resurrected from the dead when the whale spit him up onto the shore. It's another possibility. Chapter 2, though, records Jonah's prayer of repentance. Apparently, total darkness and stifling heat and boiling gastric juices all around you and slimy substances covering your body and seaweed body wraps do provide a person an excellent opportunity to ponder the error of their ways and to plot a new course... Reminds me of the young man who came to the elder of his village. He said that he wanted to know God. The older man took him down to the river and he held his head under the water for a long, long time. The young man fought and flailed and gasped for air. Finally, the elder led him up and told him, Son, when you become as desperate for God as you were for air, then you'll find him. Well, it was in such a state of desperation that Jonah finally breaks through his own prejudices and he comes to a place of humility and repentance. Read with me Jonah's prayer of repentance in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And then we're told in verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah gets a new lease on life and a second crack at ministry. He stops running from God and he begins running with God. You see, Jonah has come full circle. Guys, when will we learn we can't escape the will and calling of God? Let me warn you this morning. If you're running from God, trust me. There is a fish provided for, prepared for you. <laughs> there is a fish in your future. God has a way of getting our attention and bringing us full circle. Let me ask you, what's your Nineveh? What's the one thing you've said to God that you won't do? What's the one place you vowed you'll never go? What's the one mission you've said you would never accept? Who's the one person you've said... That you could never love. Is your prejudice more important than the will of God? I hope not. Well chapter 3 begins on a wonderful note. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Hey God is the God of second chances. Isn't that great? And God tells Jonah arise go to Nineveh that great city. And preach to it the message that I tell you. This time, the prophet obeys. Jonah makes the three-day journey to Nineveh. He stands on the street corner and he cries out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Sounds simple. But recall, Nineveh was a great city. It probably had a population of a million plus. It was the capital of a ruthless empire. You've you got to imagine what Jonah's going through here. Imagine a Jew in Tehran on an Iranian street corner, heralding the truth that Muhammad is a false prophet and Jesus is the only answer. Now you start to get the idea of what the prophet Jonah had been called to do. But notice Jonah's message. He says, yet 40 days. And the Assyrians must have thought, if God is bent on our destruction... Why wait 40 days? Jonah didn't say it, but the Assyrians assumed that God was giving them time to repent of their sin and turn back to Him. And their perception paid off. Verse 5 tells us that all of Nineveh, from the king to the commoner, believed God and repented of their sin. In fact, they called for a national fast. They humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes and they cried out for mercy. Chapter 3, verse 10 tells us the result. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In fact, you could make a case that this was the single greatest spiritual awakening in all of history. You know, at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Yet in Nineveh, a whole city repented and turned to God. And here's the amazing truth. God did it through a reluctant, prejudiced prophet named Jonah. Just goes to prove again, God uses us more in spite of us than because of us. You know, I believe there were four factors... To Jonah's phenomenal success. Here they are. Factor number one. The time was right. The Syrian king at that moment was a man named Ashurdan III. His reign was colored by several natural, natural disasters that had, the people had interpreted as signs or omens. There had been an eclipse, and an earthquake, and a famine, and several military defeats. And all these things together had sort of primed the pump in the people's hearts for Jonah's message. The time was right. Factor number two, the prophet was white. Now, I'm not white. I'm light brown. I'm beige. My skin is manila. Jonah was vanilla. Jonah was bright white. Jonah had been in the belly of the fish, and those gastric juices had done a number on the pigment in his skin, and they had bleached him. He looked like a Jewish albino. And the brothers smelled. Something was fishy about this guy. You knew it right away. He definitely could attract a crowd. Hey, folks came out to see the puked-up prophet. The time was right. The prophet was white. In factor number three, they had heard of his flight. In Luke 11, Jesus said that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Evidently, his story was already well known. The Assyrians had known of his racial prejudice, and yet God had loved them enough to employ unusual means to overcome this prophet's reluctance. It was obvious that God had loved Nineveh. You know, it's also interesting, Assyria worshipped the fish god, Oannes. And that a fish threw up Jonah on the shore might have caused the Assyrians to initially think that he was the messenger of Oannes. If so, it provided Jonah an immediate platform from which to teach about the one true God of Israel. The time was right, the prophet was white, they'd heard of his flight. And then factor number four, the Spirit of God showed his might. And this is the case, my friend, with all spiritual awakenings. God will use desperate circumstances. He will use fired up, puked out prophets. But ultimately, all revivals are works of God's Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah had said at his conversion, Salvation is of the Lord. You see, no man comes to God and embraces Jesus unless the Spirit of God draws him. That was true of Nineveh, that was true of Jonah, and that's true of you and of me. Every time a person is saved for eternity, it involves the power of the Holy Spirit. Never forget that. Now chapter 4 proves just how deep-seated was Jonah's prejudice. Verse 1 reveals an unbelievable fact. But it pleased Jonah exceedingly, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Now imagine this. Jonah preached, people repented, and now he's upset. Say what? He preaches, they repent, and he's upset. I mean, check out his complaint in verses 2 and 3. Ah, Lord God, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah is saying, I knew this would happen. This is just like God. This is why I ran away. I knew if those bloody Assyrians gave God half a reason, He'd show them mercy and He'd forgive them of their sins. You see, Jonah still hated the Assyrians. He didn't want to see them saved. He wanted to see them fry. He wanted to see fire fall from heaven. Rather than rejoice over Nineveh's repentance, Jonah was resentful. In fact, he's so bummed out, he wants to die. In verse 3, he prays, Now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How can anybody be that bigoted? The prophet Jonah was one sick pup, man, I'm telling you. Jonah still hopes that God is going to rain down fire on Nineveh and so he goes outside of the city and he builds himself a little lean-to to sort of shade him from the blistering sun. You can ask some of our Iraqi soldiers. The summer temps around the site of ancient Nineveh can reach 125 degrees. Jonah is planning to settle in here and he's built himself this shade. He's hoping to watch God's fireworks. But chapter 4 verse 6 tells us what happened. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. It was probably a palm. You know, they grow eight to ten feet tall and they have these elephant ear leaves and these tender stalks. The palm grew up overnight to provide Jonah supernatural shade. He didn't deserve this blessing, but Jonah was glad and he was grateful. And yet, as quickly as God had blessed Jonah, God removed the blessing. You'll notice that the next day, God sent a worm that ate the plant. And he sent an east wind to blow more hot air on Jonah. The plant and the prophet wilted from the elements. And once again, Jonah despairs of life. Every time Jonah doesn't get his way, he wants to curl up and die. He, he just is a spoiled brat. That's what, He's the pouting prophet. That's who Jonah is. Here's Jonah. He hates people, but he's fallen in love with his plant. He cares more about the plant that's just wilted than he does about the people that could have been destroyed. It's interesting how in the absence of human relationships, some folks can get attached to a dog or a cat or a plant. I had a neighbor, just like Jonah, who loved her lawn and her plants. In fact, she alienated every kid in the neighborhood because they ran through her silly yard. She said she didn't want her grass matted down. Instead of caring about people, Jonah became attached to a plant. He cared more about his palm than the souls of the people of Nineveh. When Minnesota Twins slugger Harmon Killebrew was inducted into Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame, he told a story about his dad. The elder Killebrew would play pitch with the two boys in the front yard. And on occasion, Harmon's mom would complain about them wearing out the grass. Mr. Killebrew would always remind her, Honey, we're raising boys, not grass. Always remember, it's people, not things or objects that matter. It's people that matter. And here's the Christmas... I knew I'd get a Christmas lesson out of Jonah. Here's the Christmas lesson for you and I from the book of Jonah. This year, don't get so caught up in the shopping and the gift-giving, and the decorating, and the party-going, and overlook the souls and the needs of the people around you. It's people that matter. You see, Jonah's plant could just as easily be your Christmas tree. The Lord rebukes Jonah in verse 10. He says, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Jonah mourns a plant while he complains about God's pity and mercy toward a people. Notice the mention here of those who can't tell their right from their left. Or the children. Jonah is trying, God is trying to shake some sense into Jonah. He, and basically he's saying to him, Think of all of the innocent children that I've saved. If you can't have pity on the adults, have pity on the children. They would have grown up pagan, idolaters. They would have gone to hell if I had not delivered them and forgiven this city. Don't you see it's people that matter, Jonah? You know, there are only two items on earth that will live For all eternity. God's word and the souls of people. You see, it's people that matter. This Christmas, make sure you don't get attached to an ornament and miss the will of God. Your plant can be a career or a hobby or a talent or an ambition or a pet. Or your plant might be your plant's. But never let an object or an animal become more important than the people around you. The people in your life. God loves people and he wants us to love them too. Unlike Jonah, be a people person, not a plant person. Now what eventually happened to Jonah is a mystery. Archaeologists have found a mound near the ancient site of Nineveh. The Arabs call it Nebi Yunus which means the prophet Jonah. The area is so revered by the locals that the archaeologists have prohibited exploring the tale. The mound is believed to be the site of Jonah's tomb. If that's true, it would indicate that Jonah planted himself in Nineveh. And he spent the rest of his life teaching the Assyrians about the one true God. You know, it's nice to think that someone can overcome their prejudices. It's nice to think that someone so full of hate toward another group of people can lay that aside and be overwhelmed by the love of God to the point to where they're even willing to love those they used to hate. It would be nice to think that. I think it would be nice to think that Jonah overcame his prejudices. Then he recognized the mercy and the grace that God had shown him. And then he loved the Ninevites with that same kindness. The book of Jonah is full of miracles. The storm at sea, the great fish, the overnight plant, the hungry worm, and the sudden east wind. But the greatest miracle by far is when God transforms a bigot into a big-hearted person. That is the greatest miracle. We can only hope that happened to Jonah. And we can pray that that happens to you. And that that happens to me.